starting with Joel, chapter 2, verse 12. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing, grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, consecrate the assembly, bring together the elders, gather the children, those nursing at the breast, let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Let the priests who minister before the Lord weep between the portico and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, Lord. Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Then the Lord was jealous for his land and took pity on his people. Luke chapter 15, starting at verse 11. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out, to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the elder son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The elder brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes come home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, 
because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is God's word. Let me lead us in prayer and then we'll look at this together. Our great God of Father, we thank and praise you that you are perfect in all your ways. You are not one who looks upon uh, wickedness and turns away. You are one who ensures there is justice. And yet wonderfully alongside your justice, there is mercy. Father, would we hear both of those things rightly this morning so that we are those who know that through the Lord Jesus Christ we can return to you. And we do so with all our hearts, we pray it in his name. Amen. Now, if you weren't here last week, uh, we looked at Joel chapter 1, and um, we said it's a warning. God had sent a locust plague against Israel as a warning. Now, what do you do with warnings? Uh, a friend recently had a, um, a TIA, a mini stroke, and uh, it's when sort of the, the blood flow doesn't quite go to the brain, and so the brain sort of shuts down momentarily, and then parts of the body it controls uh, seize up. Now, look, it was that the, he'd had a few of these, so a couple of these in the past, and uh, whatever. Uh, they only last a few seconds and move on. This one was a bit more serious, had to go to hospital, um, was told, no, 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 you take this seriously. You have an episode like that again, you can permanently lose, you know, mobility or, or, or movement. So there's, there's change, there's change. All these new tablets are taken on a daily basis. There's lifestyle change. Uh, there's diet change because you get a significant warning you respond to it now Joel chapter 1 is the history we're not quite sure of the dating but God had sent a locust plague against the nation of Israel it was a significant warning he said I mean it was devastating but he said you need to return to me or worse will happen I'm warning you, I'm letting you know, you're about to crash your lives. Come back, come back to me. That is essentially what Joel chapter one was. And the center of the book really is Joel chapter two and verse 12. It's the central command. Even now declares the Lord, return to me. Return to me with all your heart. Return to me. Don't just change bits of your lifestyle, but your relationship with me has to completely change. Much like the younger son in Luke 15, which is why we had it read. Return to me. Let's restore our relationship because at the moment you are trashing your life and it's only going to end in disaster. Return. Come back to me. We get that, I think. The, uh, the great Australian preacher John Chapman, he used to tell this story quite often, the story of um, uh, a teenage girl who in her late teens, uh, on the brisk of turning into her, brink of turning into her 20s, uh, she left home uh, in Brazil. She just had a mum, it's just her and her mum, and she left home and, and moved to Sao Paulo for work and independence, but after a little while, got in with an unhelpful crowd. So taking drugs, became addicted, couldn't afford them. Well, to fund the lifestyle, went into prostitution. That went downhill pretty rapidly, and so it was on the streets. And after a while, she just never phoned home. 
for her mother because she was ashamed, just absorbed in her own world. And after a mile, obviously, the mum picks up, this is, you know, this is not right, this is not right. And, and so went to the city out of how many millions and just spent weeks going around every phone box, every public place, and just past, plastering these A4 posters. It's just a picture of her and her daughter from a couple of years earlier, just the two of them. And underneath it, just she wrote, whatever you've done, no matter the mistakes, no matter what debts you've incurred, come home. I love you. Come home. And that is the call of Joel chapter 2 and verse 12. Come home. Return to me, says the Lord. Return to me. So that's how we're going to look at it, because that is the central command. So uh, very simply, return with all your heart. Return for the Lord is gracious. Return with all the people, those three. Okay, and then we'll draw some conclusions for today. Okay, return with all your heart, 12 or 13. Return for the Lord is gracious, 13, 14. Return with all the people, 15 to the end. Return. First, then, return with all your heart, verses 12 and 13. Verse 12, even now declares the Lord. Well, just tangentially, that's, um, this little phrase, declares the Lord, declares the Lord. If you, if you read the prophets, uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, 12 minor prophets, you get, you get it just hundreds of times. That's just how God describes himself, himself speaking, declares the Lord, declares the Lord, declares the Lord. It's a normal prophetic language, just once in the book of Joel here. Return to me, declares the Lord. In other words, just get your highlighter pen out. This is the bid in block capitals. This is, if you hear nothing else, this is what you need to hear. Return to me, declares the Lord, with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. Now, in the Old Testament, uh, there are three sort of words or terms that get used for repentance. Uh, return is the most common one, or, or literally turn. Uh, hundreds and hundreds of times you get that. You get that here, turn to me. Uh, the second one, sort of most common one is, um, is rip your hearts or circumcise your hearts or transform your hearts. It's sort of emotional, internal. So return is obviously relational. You're walking away and you turn around and walk towards someone. You return to them. It's obviously a relational term. Uh, the, the, the ripped heart well, that's unique here, but the, the transformed heart, clearly emotional, all of you. The, the third one, which doesn't occur here, but just out of interest, is, is, is the breaking up of ground. Smash the ground. Break the fallow ground of your behavior. Sort of stresses how stubborn we can be. Those are the three of the most common ones in the Old Testament. You get two of them here then. Return with your heart. So return to me, yes, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Yeah, 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 yeah all those things. But those are just manifestations of your attitude. Rend your hearts, not your garments. I mean, to rend your garment, obviously, that's a cultural thing. We, we don't do it in the West. You know, to, but to get your shirt, to get your coat and just rip it. It's quite a dramatic thing, isn't it? We do that to your hearts. I mean, this is earnest change he's saying 
So just, I think, a couple of obvious clarifying comments. Look, re repentance, it, it's not just going through the motions. If you rend your heart, that isn't just sort of plodding through it. So I can think of, it's more than a decade ago now, um, a couple no, no longer at the church, but the, the, um, uh, the husband had an affair and um, knew he'd done wrong and he, he came back and said, uh, look, well, um, look, I've done wrong, but I'm back. Okay, I'm, I'm back now. And we had this conversation as I sat with them and, and this conversation bouncing back and forth a little bit. And at one point the wife said, look, I hear what you're saying, but I, I don't just want you back in the house. I don't, just, I don't just want your money. I don't just want you doing DIY. I don't care if you put out the bins particularly. I want your affection. I want your love. Otherwise, this is just a sham. We can pretend to everyone else. But unless that is there, what are we doing? And actually, it all went well for them uh, eventually. But that's what the Lord is saying. Look, I'm not interested in just going, you going through the motions. Anyone can mumble through a confession and not mean anything. Rather, what we're saying here is when we rend our hearts, it's, Lord, I, I'm coming back to you and I, I do want to live your way. I'm going to make changes to love you. So therefore, the, the time I spend with you, Lord, I, I know I need that to love you. The, the practical elements of my behavior that are wrong, I, I, I'll change them. I'm not just mumbling words. I'm not just saying the right thing. I'm not just going through the motions. And another little clarifying thing, look, there's a difference between repentance and regret. Judas is a great example in one sense. In the, in the New Testament, Judas, he betrays Jesus, and he's filled with remorse, he's filled with regret, and he turns in on himself, and in his self-pity, he commits suicide. He deeply regrets what he's done, but it's not repentance. Because repentance says, I'm sorry, and I turn back to you, Lord. I don't turn in on myself, and I don't just, I'm not just sorry because of the consequences. Oh, look what I've done. I'm sorry because I, well, because it was wrong. It was just wrong. And I look to you, Lord, and before you, I say it was wrong. Now, look, you can, um, in your car, you can be driving and you can uh, go through a red light and uh, get snapped on the camera and uh, get your, whatever it is, 80 pound fine. Uh, I wouldn't know. Uh, I do know. The, um, get your 80 pound fine and uh, your three points or four if you're particularly speedy. Um, uh, and you think, oh, I'm, I really regret that. I'm really annoyed that happened. I really wish I hadn't sped that day. I really wish I'd kept to 30 miles an hour. And the only reason you're really annoyed is because of the consequences. Because you've got to pay up and now you're on nine. And one more and you're in real trouble. Uh, apparently that happens. Um, the, uh, there's a difference between regretting the consequences and saying, oh no, I, I hate what I did is wrong. And the, 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 the difference is obviously is in transformed behavior. You get your three points and you, you're 80 pound fine. Oh, I'm so annoyed. I really wish I hadn't done that. And two weeks later, you do precisely the same. You're, it's not repentance. Nothing's changed. 
You just regret the consequences for yourself. Do you see the difference? Repentance says what I did was wrong. I see it. Now look, keep the law. Keep to 30 miles an hour and 30 mile an hour limits. Please do, I should tell you that. But in one sense, who cares? Too strongly. Um, you know, you do, it's just one thing. But this is your whole life. Don't just regret the things you do wrong. You return to the Lord. A change of lifestyle, repentance, returning to the Lord, it, it rejects ungodliness and says, I'm just not going to go there and embraces godliness and says, that's where I'm going. That's what I'm living for. It is transforming. So return with all your heart, verses 12 to 13. And then secondly, why in one sense? So return for the Lord is gracious, verses 13 and 14. And, and here is the heart of the appeal. So verse 13, rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. Why? Well, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And he relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing, grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. Return to him for he is gracious and compassionate. And you have to know that. You just have to know that. Otherwise, why bother? Oh, I've done something wrong. I should probably return to the Lord. And if you think, or if you wonder, or if you slightly expect that when you return to the Lord, you're just greeted with, oh, frustration, idiot, you've done it again, anger. Wow, one more time, and you're, that's it, you're beyond the pale. If you're greeted with that, why would you bother? Why would you repent? Why would anyone go back if that's how you're greeted? But you need to know that when you return to the Lord, it is... It is to the father of Luke 15. It is to the one who runs to you. It is to the one who says, welcome back, I am slow to anger. I'm always gracious. You can be absolutely certain that you're greeted with compassion. You need to know that. So when you return, when you repent and go back to him, you, you know you're greeted with love, with a smile with an embrace. You have to know that. Joel says that the Lord relents from sending calamity. Who knows, he may relent. Does that mean that God changes his mind? No, because this is his disposition. He always does this. So uh, he told his people years earlier, uh, back in 2 Chronicles 7, I don't know if we got that, 2 Chronicles 7, the, uh, the, the temple, they've just built the temple, uh, the God's people Israel, they've just built the temple, and Solomon is dedicating it, and there's a prayer of Solomon to the Lord, and the Lord says to Solomon, look, here's what you need to remember, when I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command locusts to devour the land, as has just happened in chapter 1, or send a plague among my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then promise, I will hear from heaven and promise, I will forgive their sin and promise, I will heal their land. So the Lord says, look, I promise, it's just what I'm always like. 
I will warn you. Look, something worse than locusts is going to come along. But as soon as you say, we're back, Lord. We've returned to you. We're going to change our ways. Of course there's always forgiveness. I've promised there's always forgiveness. It's guaranteed. So why the doubt of verse 14? Who who knows, says Joel. He, He may turn and relent. Well, I think there's just a humility here. There's no presumption. Don't return to the Lord with a, yeah, well, come on, you promised, so cough up. The attitude with which you go back is of significance, humility, trusting that he's merciful. And actually, what will he do? Verse 14, he'll he'll turn, relent, and this is striking. He'll leave behind a blessing, grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. If you were here last time, the the locust plague had taken everything. So chapter 1, verse 9, grain offerings and drink offerings are cut off from the house of the Lord. They had nothing left to come to the temple and go, well, here's an offering to you, Lord. There's nothing they can offer at all. And Joel says, look, the first sign, or the Lord says, the first sign of me blessing you again is that you can serve me. It's quite striking, I think. We return to the Lord. We don't just do it for our own good. We do do it to serve him. But the key element is you have to know who you're returning to. Verse 13. You return to one who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. You have to know who you're going back to. So I remember I was about 10 years old. Uh, my family, the household I grew up in was a pretty frugal household. You certainly didn't waste money on uh, anything. Uh, 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 you just didn't. That was just the way we were raised. And um, so in the summer months, the, uh, all the boiler was shut down and drained. Uh, and uh, then the, if you want any hot water, you had to sort of press the immersion heater button, and, and that was the cheapest way of doing it in our house, whatever. Um, but the immersion heater was fine. It was the cheapest way of heating the water. But if you left it on for too long... That's wasting money. And so there was one night, I was about 10 years old, something like that, and I'd had a shower in the evening, so I'd put on the immersion heater and I'd gotten and I'd had a shower and gone to bed and forgotten to turn it off. And uh, then, whatever, so 11 o'clock or something, I, you know, my father comes up and says, Who has left on the immersion heater? And, um, and I just sort of pretended to be asleep and just, sort of, just hid. Uh, but he, Who has left on the immersion heater? Who, you know that wastes money. And, um, and, I, and then he came into my bedroom. Was it you? I'm asleep. Was it you? No, it wasn't me. Um, I just lied. Uh, and then he's just going to my mother and my sister. What, who has left on the emotion? Who has left? He was, he was, well, someone's done it. And then there's sort of anger is sort of rebounding around everyone until eventually I said, it was me. It was me. Why did you lie? I was scared. Everyone just went to bed. And the reason this is memorable to me is because the next day my father came and said, I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry. I, why would I get so upset over that? And if you're scared to come to me, that's a disaster. In our family, honesty matters more than money spent on heating water. That's neither here nor there. 
honesty matters, I'm really sorry. I just want to let you know, you can always tell me when you've done wrong and I won't rage at you. And about three weeks later, I put that to the test. <laughs> not, not deliberately, but it was, it was maybe three or four weeks later or something. I was, in a, I was in a stinking temper and I slammed a door and it ripped the wood around the hinges. I mean, um, and this thing ripped on. Yes, exactly. Um, was the, the lament. Uh, indeed. The, um, uh, and I thought, well, I could pretend. I could try and fix this myself. But I just went to my dad and said, Dad, look, I, look I, I've, I've done this. He came over, saw it. I mean, it was a bit of, you know, wood splintered. And he just looked at me. He's clearly irritated. says... Okay, well, you and I will sort that out then. Oh. You've changed. It's very different when you know you can go to someone and they're not going to rage at you. When you know they're going to offer you their time, their labor, it's costly to them because of your mistakes. It's very different. It creates a different relationship. We return to him. And we need to know the God to whom we return. It is the God of Luke 15. It is the Father with open arms. It is the Father who says, whatever you've done, no matter what crimes you've committed, no matter what debts you've accumulated, come home. Look, just to clarify, we don't repent to um, achieve forgiveness. It's really only we come with open hands to receive it. It's not that we manipulate God with our tears or if we're miserable enough or wallow enough or rip enough clothes, then, uh, then he'll forgive us. We never merit his forgiveness. We always only come with open hands saying, I, I got nothing, but I know that Jesus has paid for my debts, covers all my moral errors, my flaws, my sin, and so I come back to you in a right sense, not presumptuously, but reverently saying, I expect that you'll forgive because that's who you are and even though I don't deserve it. We don't merit forgiveness through repentance. It's just coming with open, empty hands. Return, return with all your heart, return for the Lord is gracious, uh, and then briefly return with all the people. 15 to 17, these last few verses so verse 15 blow the trumpet in Zion not as a warning do you remember if you were here last time chapter 2 verse 1 blow the trumpet in Zion that's a warning that's the fire alarm going off now it's to gather the people verse 15 blow the trumpet in Zion declare a holy fast call a sacred assembly gather the people you had all these imperatives verses 16 and 17 I think seven of them gather the people consecrate the assembly bring together the elders gather the children those at the nursing breast let the bridegroom leave his room the bride her chamber let the priests who minister before the Lord weep before the portico and the altar you see there's an urgency here so um, verse 16 it doesn't matter if you're in the middle of breastfeeding go just go Verse 16, it doesn't matter if you're on a honeymoon, you've got to come. You've got to come to this. 
I mean, the honeymoon's not going very well anyway, is it? The bridegroom's in one room and the bride's in another chamber. So you may say, it's not, it's not that. It's just for poetic. It's just saying, you know, everyone do what they can. But it doesn't matter if you're breastfeeding, you're on honeymoon, come. You've got to be there. There's an urgency to this. And here are the words you should say. God kindly gives them the words to say. Verse 17, spare your people, Lord. Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, a byword among the nations. Why should the nations say, well, where's their God? They trust the Lord. They trust this Yahweh. Well, where is he that this has happened to them? Don't let them say that, Lord. Now, the striking thing to me is, particularly we read some of what passes for Christianity today, who would have thought that here the Lord is saying, as one says, one of the goals of a church gathering should be that the congregation gather to the point of weeping in repentance. There's a deep sorrow here when they return with all their hearts. We're to say, verse 17, for the sake of your name, Lord, forgive us. Now that's Israel in the promised land suffering a locust plague. Let me try and as um, five or ten minutes or five minutes or so, uh, just make sure we understand what about us? What about for you and me? Let me first say, look, if you're not yet a Christian, Jesus would say you can't, you can't return to him, you can't become a Christian without this turning, without this repentance. One of the blunt little stories he tells is in Luke 13, I don't know if we've got Luke 13, not a story actually, here's, here's a, just a little vignette of what's happened. Jesus warns the people, look, unless you repent, you too will all perish. And clearly here was something that was in the news at the time. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will perish. Oh, look, there's been some disaster. There's, a tower has fallen over and 18 people are killed in the crush. And Jesus is saying, well, do you think they were worse people than you? Do you think they died because they were wicked and, and you're good? No. Stuff happens. Bad things happen. But it's just... When bad things happen, you just need to wake yourselves up, be woken up and say, where do I stand before the Lord? And to be normal, I guess, when tragedies happen in this world, one response amongst many, amongst the sympathy, amongst the tears, one response should be, well, where do I stand before the Lord? I mean, these people who die, they're no worse than me. So Jesus, you, you do have to repent to become a Christian. So I guess one question will be here, have you done that? Naturally, all of us are walking away from the Lord. Repentance is turning around and saying, I now want to walk your way. I want to walk towards you. Look, salvation is by faith primarily in Jesus Christ. Fundamentally, you, you become a Christian by saying, I trust that Jesus has died for all my sins, all my failures. I trust that he's given me the status of an obedient life. I, I trust that. I have faith in him. But repentance is a sign that you do do that. You, you can't separate them. There's a sense in which repentance is as necessary to salvation as your ankle is to you walking by faith. You just can't walk without an ankle. You don't really have faith in Jesus 
unless you've turned away from ungodliness and are attempting, we all make mistakes, but are attempting to keep walking in godliness. That is the sign of faith. Have you done that? Have you put your faith in Jesus? Returned to the Lord through him? Then for those of us who are Christians, let me say three little things. Uh, the first is that the whole of life is repentance. It's not something, it's not just an emotional decision you do once at the beginning of the Christian life. Famously, Martin Luther, a uh, hundred odd years ago now, uh, nailed his 95 theses to the door of the church of Wittenberg Castle. And thesis number one was, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he meant that the entire life of believers should be one of repentance. What? Well, because the whole of the Christian life is turning away from ungodliness and walking in godliness. And you don't do that once. That's a decision you take every day. In that sense, the whole of life is one of repentance. It's choosing to follow Christ, not your own desires. The whole of life is repentance. Second little thing, repentance is meant to be specific. The odd thing here in Joel is that even though there's an extraordinary cry to return to the Lord, we're never told specifically what for. And we sort of know the things that Israel would do, was doing wrong. But it never says here, repent or return because of X, Y, and Z. They're to return because... Well, I think that must be by design. There are plenty of other Old Testament prophets which nail specific things they were doing wrong. But here it's, well, I think it's, it's left for us as a timeless book. But you and I need to remember that God's mercy, it's not, like a, it's not like snake oil. It's not a wonder medicine. You come to church, have a slug of mercy, and then off you go. And it just covers all known sins. No, we come to the Lord and we re repent. We turn away from specific sins. Lord, I'm conscious this week. I lost my temper several times. I want to stop being angry. Look, I'm conscious this week. I went through four red lights. If the letters don't catch up with me and I've still got a license by this time next week, I want to... It's specific God's mercy is prescribed for each individual's sinfulness. Your, my, specific guilt. So each and every week at church, we'll, we'll say a, a general confession. We always say it out loud together. I don't know what you do. What, I, I, what do you do when we say that? I mean, sometimes, and don't mishear me, I don't think it's unhelpful, but sometimes whoever's leading it will say, well, let's just have a moment to call into our minds something specific. At that moment in time, my mind normally goes, and I think of someone, you know, I think it just slightly goes blank. Because unless we've been, unless we're conscious of specific things, what are we asking for mercy for? Now, don't mishear me. God's mercy always outweighs our sin. You cannot out-sin God's mercy and even the things you can't, you're not even conscious of, he'll forgive you for if you come and ask for forgiveness generally. But in our behavior, we're meant to repent of specific things. Return away, turn away from, turn to him 
specifically. In other words, there's not just a disposition. I live in a sort of repentant mood. That's kind of how I hang. That's my vibe. What for? Look, the whole of life is repentance. Repentance is specific. Last little thing. Uh, repentance is not humiliating. It's freedom. Why? Because, look, when you can... It's not humiliating, it's freedom. Why? When you can say, oh, I know in every area of my life I'll get stuff wrong, I, feel sh- I fall short of God's glory all over the place. But secondly, I know that when I turn and walk towards him, I find a God who loves me, a father who has his arms open, who embraces me. I know that both those things, which means that day by day, I expect I'll get things wrong. I can be honest about my flaws They don't ruin me. I don't have to pretend. By contrast, if you're unwilling to admit that anything's wrong with you, well, then you'll never repent. Uh, This was a striking little article uh, in the paper on uh, Thursday. Uh, The headline, uh, I'm a narcissist, and I'm only too proud to admit it says um, Emily Clarkson, age 24. Uh, and she says, yeah, my generation, there's some new research had come out in the States that uh, millennials, they're all narcissists, if that's you, just deal with it apparently. And, um, uh, and that's a good thing. Wow. So she says, uh, when I look in the mirror, I like what I see. When I'm left on my own, I'm very happy with my company. I'm not sure that having excessive admiration for yourself is a bad thing. I mean, just, you might want to just look up the word excessive in a dictionary. I mean, I, but anyway. Um, and she's no, because she makes a living out of blogging about herself and publicizing herself. And you think, well, that's okay. But there's one or two questions I'd want to ask uh, Emily. What happens when you know you've screwed up? What do you do? If you have such extraordinarily high self-regard, can you admit it? Are you ever going to post on your blog that you've got anything wrong? Can you be honest with people? If you're really proud and love being a narcissist, how are you ever going to hold down a relationship with someone like you? But can you admit what you've done wrong? My dad, when he changed his disposition, when I smashed a door, I don't need to pretend. I don't need to wait till he's out of the house and then run to the DIY shop and try and buy some wood glue and paint. And I don't have to pretend and make a bodge job of it. I can say, Dad, I've screwed up. Help. <sighs> All right, son, let's sort it out together. So much easier when you can say, I've screwed up, help. And someone who's better than you, more competent, says, yeah, okay. Having to pretend, having the veneer around the whole of your life, never admitting failure, never admitting weakness, that's pretty exhausting. So do you see, I, repentance is not humiliating, it's freedom. It's honesty. Once you become a Christian, once you believe the gospel, you know that you're flawed, but you can admit it because you know that God is a father who's gracious and merciful. 
That is liberating. It can be real. So this is the call of Joel. It's the central command in the whole book. Chapter 2, verse 12. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. Whatever you've done, no matter what crimes you've committed, no matter what crimes you've committed, no matter what debts you've incurred, come home. I love you. Come home. Let me lead us in prayer together. Our great God and Father, it's not a small thing to reject you. It's not a small thing to live our own way. And as we thought last time, we thank and praise you that you warn us that we will ruin our lives and our eternity in doing that. But Father, thank you that even though that's not a small thing, we can return to you through the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who has paid for all our debts, the one who has uh, absorbed all our punishment, the one who has paid for all our mistakes. Father, thank you that we can return to him. And so we praise you that you are the Lord who is gracious and compassionate slow to anger, abounding in love, relents from sending calamity against us because takes it in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that there is a way back to you through him. And your longing, your desire, is that we return to you with all our heart. Would we be those who live that way? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.